Welcome to the podcast of the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department's 2016-2017 Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series entitled The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Today, November 10, 2016, we broadcast a panel discussion on migrant detention with David Hernandez, Mizui Izeki, Megan Clute, and Carl Lynn Skoog. Thank you for listening. Welcome. Um, I'm Brian Ogilvie. Uh the chair of the history department here at UMass Amherst. Uh, and this afternoon, it is my privilege uh, and pleasure to welcome you to the latest event in our Feinberg family lecture series on mass incarceration, uh, a panel discussion on alien incarcerations, migrants, and detention, uh, which has been organized by Professor David uh, Hernandez of Mount Holyoke College, uh, a leading scholar of immigrant detention. In the wake of the inflammatory rhetoric about immigrants and migrants in this year's presidential campaign, uh, and especially in light of this week's election result, uh, this is a troubling and timely subject. So thank you for coming. Every other year, the History Department organizes this endowed lecture series around a topic at the intersection of history and public policy. The inaugural series, uh, longer ago than I care to remember, uh, commemorated the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board, the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Most recently, two years ago, we explored immigration and migration in the modern Americas. Each year, the series features a wide variety of events from lectures and exhibitions to performances, panel discussions, and films. Uh, these offerings are planned and carried out in cooperation with other departments and programs across our campus and the five colleges. And this year, we're especially pleased to have arranged a number of events with partners across the community. Uh, and they're identified in your program, so, so please take a look. The Feinberg semester activities are possible only because of the generosity of Mr. Kenneth R. Feinberg, a 1967 alumnus of the UMass History Department, together with his family and friends. Mr. Feinberg completed his BA in history and went on to a distinguished career in law and public service. Um, a brief biography of Mr. Feinberg is in your program. Most notably, Ken served as special master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. In a talk on this campus, Mr. Feinberg articulated his conviction that the study of history is instrumental in understanding and analyzing contemporary events. We in the history department could not agree more, perhaps especially this week. The current Feinberg series was planned by the UMass Amherst History Department in consultation with both community members and faculty around the five colleges. Uh, let me here thank the members of the advisory board, uh, who are, again, all listed in your program, and whom you meet uh, as the series unfolds this semester, if you haven't already. Uh, we'd like to thank them for their dedication to this collaborative effort. I'd also like to acknowledge the tireless labor of the history department staff and students who keep the program running smoothly. Uh, and today, uh, we'd also like to thank the uh, newly created School of Public Policy here at UMass Amherst for sponsoring the reception. Uh, the robust program includes a free series for K-12 teachers, Teaching in the Age of Mass Incarceration, uh, which is offered with the Collaborative for Educational Services uh, that is supporting educators across content areas in exploring these issues in their classrooms. Uh, I'd also like to mention there is a child's table at the back of the room, so if any of you here is, uh, is here with a restless child or feel like one yourself, uh, there's coloring material and other things in the back. Um, let me invite you now to the next event in the series, uh, which is a lecture by Professor Jen Mannion of Amherst College on historicizing the carceral state, race, sex, and power in early America. Uh, that lecture will be held next Tuesday, November 15th uh, at 5 p.m. Uh, in Herder Hall, uh, room 601 uh, here on campus. 
unless we have to move it to a larger room, as happened with the last event uh, we scheduled in that room. Uh, let me also uh, finally invite you to participate in the series social media. Uh, there's a Facebook page, and our Twitter hashtag is uh, hashtag Feinberg series. Uh, just as an announcement, uh, there's also an event immediately following this panel uh, that might be of interest. Uh, tonight at 6.30 p.m., uh, so just under two hours, on the fourth floor of Herder Hall, the UMass Spanish and Portuguese program is hosting an open discussion for Latinx folks and allies on the effects of the 2016 election on Latinx communities. Uh, it's a chance to process, mourn, and begin to organize, and pizza will be served. Uh, and now, uh, let me uh, ask you to join me in a warm welcome for Professor David Hernandez, who will introduce the panel. Okay. Uh, thank you, Professor Ogilvy. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here this evening uh, in the middle of a very, uh, for lots of us, uh, rough 48 hours. Uh, my name is David Hernandez. I'm an assistant professor at Mount Holyoke College, and I will be uh, moderating this evening's panel discussion. I will introduce our panelists, provide an overview of the history of, migrant detention of the migrant detention regime in the United States in my presentation, and then manage the Q&A after all of our panelists have spoken. But first, I would be remiss if I didn't thank the people behind the Feinberg Family Lecture Series on mass incarceration. The organizing committee and the Department of History here at UMass have done a tremendous job creating events here on this campus, uh, in the five colleges, and, and outside in the community as well. And that was by design. I was on sabbatical during the initial organizing meeting, so I could only attend, I think, maybe the first and maybe the second. Um, and then I had to pull back. But uh, however, one very special person, uh, Jessica Johnson, worked with me across extensive email communication over months and months to help me create this panel. So please help me, and we must thank Jessica and give her a round of applause. So again, thanks. So for our topic tonight, uh, migrant detention in the United States and deportation more generally, uh, the election couldn't have been more impactful. It's also equally important that a lecture series on mass incarceration includes this topic on mass, uh, on, immigrant, on migrant incarceration. Um, so let me briefly introduce our panelists and in the order they will speak. And after my remarks, uh, we will hear from uh, uh, our first panelist, Carl Linskoog, who is an assistant professor of history at Raritan Valley Community College in Branchburg, New Jersey. So he, he drove a ways to get here. Uh, where he teaches courses in Latin American, African American, and United States history. Carl is a specialist in immigration, race, and ethnicity in the United States and Latin America, and he is the author of a, a very exciting forthcoming book, Haitian Refugees and the Rebirth of Immigrant Detention, Immigrant, Immigrant Detention in the United States, 1973 to 2000, and you will find that from the Univers University Press of Florida. It's forthcoming. Next, uh, we will have Megan Clute. Megan is uh, an immigration attorney at Kern and Berger Immigration Law in Northampton, Massachusetts. She is an expert in asylum and refugee law and represents clients from around the world in immigration interviews and in the U.S. Immigration Court, particularly in Boston. In 2014 and 2015, Megan provided on-the-ground legal assistance 
to Central American refugee mothers who were detained with their children by the U.S. government in Artesia, New Mexico, and then in Dilly, Texas. She currently organizes off-site volunteers in order to provide legal support for these very detainees. Ms. Clute has been a member of the uh, American Immigrant Lawyers Association National Board of Publications Committee and has published several articles on different areas of immigration law. She has been a guest lecturer and speaker at this campus at UMass and at Smith College and regularly gives talks on visa options to international students. She's a member of the state bars of Massachusetts and Michigan and the U.S. District Courts for the state of Massachusetts. Last, after uh, the, our fourth speaker will be Mizui Aizeki, is Deputy Director at the Immigrant Defense Project where she, in, in New York City, where she focuses on ending injustices related to the entanglement of the criminal and immigration systems, including criminalization, imprisonment, and exile due to, due to criminal convictions. Mizui has been an organizer around racial justice, workers' rights, and the policing and deportation of migrants in the interior and at the U.S.-Mexico border since 1995. Mizue is also an accomplished photographer whose work has appeared in Dying to Live, a story of U.S. immigration in an age of global apartheid, 2008, and then the recent Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. That's 2016 from Verso. Okay, so again, welcome. Um, I would like, I will begin my presentation. I would like to uh, share with you an overview of the U.S. immigrant detention regime, which is one of the most misunderstood powers of the federal government. Now, I hope this provides the context uh, for the expertise that will follow. From my work, the common thread that runs through the history of migrant detention is obscurity. Why don't we know anything about this federal enforcement power? What factors keep it hidden from public view? How has this persisted over time, spanning three centuries? I will address some of these forms of obscurity, spatial, temporal, legal, and bureaucratic, uh, historiographic, and political tonight. When we normally hear about migrant detention, it is typically in the context of a crisis real or imagined. These can uh, be health scares, refugee streams, 9-11, or other uh, national emergencies. Now I want to suggest that the context of crisis itself can obscure detention's larger patterns in history, which this slide represents. It's meant to be an intentional blur of continuous crises spanning three centuries in which the federal government has consolidated its authority over migrants. In nearly every one of these cases, it has been non-white migrants, but not always, but mostly, that have suffered the menace of the detention and deportation regime. I can't go over each episode, but I wanted to provide a sense of the continuity of this regime. Now let me give you a visual reminder of who are the central racial targets of the contemporary detention and deportation apparatus. This photo is from a museum exhibit uh, at the Border Patrol Museum in El Paso, Texas. In the eyes of the Border Patrol, it's clear who they are after, who is their main target, just like it's clear who their union endorsed for president. In this case, the central target is Latino homies. You may have seen some of these figurines uh, 
at Denny's or in a truck stop or something like that. The Border Patrol is empowered, we must remember, to utilize race lawfully in their enforcement procedures. And the statistics bear this out. Well over 90% of apprehensions, detentions, and deportations impact persons from Latin America and the Caribbean. In addition to this historiographic obscurity, there are a number of other reasons we know little about this enforcement power. Detention exists in the shadow of the criminal justice system, also known as the prison industrial complex, imprisoning 2.3 million people every day. Mass incarceration hides a lot of things. One of them is migrant detention. Detention's recent growth under the last two administrations also hides its long-term history. Detention is often sensationalized around crises, as I mentioned, such as refugee streams, health scares, wars, including the Cold War and the so-called wars on drugs, on crime, and on terror. Detention is rarely a priority in immigration debates. Detention is decentralized, using over 250 facilities nationwide. Detainees do not serve sentences, but languish for weeks or years in uncertainty. Now, it's critical to mention that detention is an administrative process only. It's not punishment or even imprisonment in a legal sense, although there are bars and they are in prisons. Major reforms often bypass immigrant detention. And so I'll emphasize these last two points in a minute. Over the last 140 years, federal authorities have used a variety of technologies to capture, detain, and deport migrants. They represent an accumulation and consolidation of powers. The system has not become kinder and gentler, but more efficient and heartless. Almost all of these enforcement technologies began historically as regional efforts and innovations in policing and then went nationwide. They are examples of how regional and local fears become national paranoia. The detention regime holds a range of people. It's over 42,000 daily detention beds, that means 42,000 tonight, right now, add up to 10 times that amount annually. And this is, the numbers today, 42,000, is a new daily record, probably to be exceeded tomorrow. Detainees include green card holders, uh, the undocumented, and asylum seekers. They are children seeking refuge behind bars as well. Now, as, as I mentioned, it's a highly racialized population, and it bears repeating that over 90% of apprehensions, detentions, and deportations are persons originally from Latin America and the Caribbean. These are long-term residents, averaging about 10 plus years in the US. It's not someone who just came over yesterday. Sometimes it is, but for interior enforcement, a lot of uh, the vast majority have been here a long time. The government uses a web of 250 facilities from federal to county and municipal jails, as well as a large presence of for-profit uh, corporate prisons. The private facilities themselves manage upwards to three-fourths of all bed space, creating a bevy of oversight issues. And guess whose stock went up by 43 points yesterday? Prison corporations, because they know what this, this, uh, this administration is going to mean for them. There are also hundreds of off-the-grid sites. There are over 450 temporary facilities and quote-unquote hold rooms devoid of beds and basic amenities that are not even accounted for in government reporting. 
Over 80% of detainees pass through these, contemporary these temporary facilities. Detainees have, been, have reported being held for days in these sites at airports, Border Patrol field offices, and ICE office buildings in 50 states and the colonial territories. Detention is legally and bureaucratically illegible, which is why few people know anything about it. For 120 years, the courts have ruled that detention is, quote, not imprisonment in a legal sense. It's an administrative process, and therefore, it's not considered criminal punishment. This, this critical feature places detention outside of the criminal justice system or mass incarceration and its protections. That is, there is no guaranteed right to counsel, there's less oversight, uh, and fewer minimum standards in detention. Detainees are doubly jeopardized and incarcerated in two interconnected carceral systems. Something you did yesterday can make you deportable tomorrow. Almost also, most contemporary reforms bypass detention altogether. Debates over comprehensive immigration reform rarely mention detention and often propose even harsher conditions for detainees. Drug reform programs that reduce jail time lead mandatorily to detention and deportation because of the stigma of drug, drug crimes, however petty. Removing privatization is important, as the Department of Justice is doing uh, for one subset of its prisons, and the Department of Homeland Security is considering, but it is not enough. People are harmed, receive substandard medical care, and die in federal facilities as well. The newly institutionalized standards, audits, and oversight system are systematic failures, usually rubber stamping the most dangerous facilities. And a border wall, well, a border wall is absolutely ridiculous for a population, in, for, for many reasons, but for a population in which almost half arrive lawfully and then become de uh, deportable after the fact. So we have to ask ourselves, as a nation, as a community, are we going to continue to position migrants as threats to our country, creating profits for prison corporations and political currency for politicians that they can ride all the way to the White House? After Tuesday night, we know the effect of, the, what this, of what the, the discourse will probably be. Or can we take an affirmative view, recognizing the benefits that these members contribute to our society, recognizing them as neighbors, as community members, and most importantly, recognizing the debt that we actually owe them. So thank you. So we'll take questions after the whole panel. The next is Carl. Okay, hi. So I'm really grateful to be here to be able to talk to you at this important event. Thanks to David and to all the panelists and to the whole series. It's a really important um, thing to be talking about at this moment. And thanks for coming. <clears throat> So um, I'm a historian, and so I'm going to talk about the historical origins, as I see them, of our current detention regime and detention system. But first, I want to just say something about something you might have noticed recently in the news. Um, two months ago, Americans opened up their newspapers and their news websites to encounter a story of a surge of migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, this is hardly news. But what made the story unique was that the thousands of migrants stuck on the border were not Mexican or Central American, but Haitian. 
Having fled the destruction of the devastating 2010 earthquake, many of these migrants had first gone to Brazil, where they were recruited to provide their labor for the World Cup and the Olympics. And when these opportunities evaporated, the Haitians made their long trip from South America to the U.S.-Mexico border. In late September, they remained stuck there because the Obama administration had just repealed the temporary protected status it had offered them. Now, because of that repeal, or at that point, on September 22 at least, those Haitians that did, that did illegally enter the United States would be subject to detention and expedited remo removal. And Breitbart News, which you've been hearing about recently for a certain reason, gleefully informed its readers that the U.S. was preparing a mass deportation effort against the Haitian migrants. So for those who were more familiar with stories about detention and deportation featuring Mexicans or Hondurans or other Latin Americans, this story about Haitian migrants seemed like a curious anomaly. In fact, the story of Haitian migrants facing detention and deportation is not so anomalous, but rather, as I'm going to talk about today, something that brings us full circle back to the origins of the current immigration detention system. So first, a little bit of background. Um, so for the first half of the 20th century, it was standard procedure for the Immigration and Naturalization Service to detain almost all those seeking entry into the United States. Ellis Island and Angel Islands were not just these checkpoints through which immigrants passed, but they were also immigration prisons. But in 1954, America, oops, sorry about that. American officials declared that they were ending the policy of mandatory detention. And instead of detention, while a ruling was made on a person's admissibility, immigrants would be paroled into the community. Detention did, as David suggested, continue to shape the experience of certain immigrants, particularly those coming from Mexico along the border. But in the post-1954 period, detention became the exception, not the rule. Ellis Island and other detention facilities were closed, and for the next two and a half decades, detention was no longer officially part of United States immigration policy. But here we are today. David gave you figures on its current status. So we might ask, what caused American officials to reinstitute the long dormant policy of immigration detention? And the answer, I think, lies in the US government's response to unauthorized migration from Haiti and the unprecedented steps American officials took to exclude Haitian asylum seekers from American soil. So in December 1972, a group of 65 Haitian asylum seekers arrived by boat in South Florida. This event marked the beginning of a new phase in Haitian migration to the United States, which would bring tens of thousands of so-called Haitian boat people to US shores over the next decade. Now, despite substantial evidence that many of these, Haiti, these from Haiti faced a well-founded fear of persecution, American officials immediately, immediately adopted a policy of denying asylum to Haitians, which they justified by saying that they were economic migrants rather than political refugees. Based on this blanket denial of asylum, of the approximately 50,000 Haitian asylum cases filed from 1972 to 1980, the US government granted less than 100. Now to strengthen its campaign of exclusion, blanket exclusion, the US government introduced a series of reinforcing practices central to which was the policy of detention. 
The government's purpose in using detention and curtailed due process was to deter people from Haiti and other parts of Latin America from seeking asylum on U.S. shores. The government subsequently formalized the campaign of detention as deterrence under the title The Haitian Program. But the Haitian program ran into an obstacle when in July 1980, a federal court judge ordered the government to halt its campaign, ruling that the government's actions violated the Constitution, immigration statutes, international agreements, INS regulations and procedures, and this appeared to be a major victory for opponents of the Haitian detention policy. It didn't lead the government to end its Haitian detention program, however, and the Carter administration's response to this federal court ruling established a pattern that subsequent administrations would follow to, whereby legal rulings attempting to limit detention actually led to the proliferation of the detention regime. So going forward, whenever Haitian refugees and their advocates threw up an obstacle to the government's detention program, the government found a way to circumvent it and in the process to expand the scope of the immigrant detention system. And I'm gonna show you a little bit of that history today. So for example, in that first case, so rather than accept its obligation to comply with the judge's order, Carter administration officials developed a plan to circumvent this landmark ruling. Since the ruling applied only to those in Florida's Southern District, the government reasoned, if Haitians seeking asylum in the United States could be processed outside the Southern District of Florida, they would not enjoy the protection afforded by the judge's ruling. Toward that end, the Carter administration announced that it would begin detaining and processing Haitians at Fort Allen, a US Army base in Puerto Rico. This was the government's first effort to create a system of extraterritorial detention designed to limit detainees' rights by keeping them beyond the reach of U.S. law. The Carter administration's Haitian program and its expansion into extraterritorial detention cleared the way for the formal return of immigration detention in 1980 and 1981, when American officials turned to detention as a response to an unprecedented Caribbean refugee crisis. So in the spring of 1980, nearly 125,000 Cubans sailed to the United States in search of asylum. At the same time, thousands of Haitians fleeing a deteriorating human rights situation in their country were also sailing for the US, and over 11,000 Haitian asylum seekers ultimately joined these more than 100,000 Cubans. This placed the United States in an unprecedented position, for the first time in its history, of being a country of mass first asylum. Carter administration officials detained both Cuban and Haitian asylum seekers at a series of camps across the country. But the Cuban influx dropped off in the last quarter of 1980, by which time most of the Cubans had been released from detention and were being processed for asylum. Thousands of Haitians, on the other hand, remained in detention, including at the soon-to-be-notorious Chrome Avenue Detention Center, that's what all these pictures are from. And unlike the Cubans, the Haitians kept coming. And so by January 1981, when Carter's successor took office, the number of Haitian arrivals in the last year alone had reached more than 20,000. Thousands more would arrive from Haiti through the spring of 1981, drawing the attention of federal officials and causing them to make stopping Haitian migration priority number one. And in this effort to stop migration from Haiti, detention would be a key tool of the newly elected Reagan administration. Now, it's worth pausing here a moment to observe that the return of detention as a tool of immigration control 
was in a large sense the US government's response to an historic shift in refugee movements to North America. Bill Freelich, policy analyst for the US Committee for Refugees, notes that before 1975, the United States received about 200 asylum applications per year. And then more than 100,000 asylum seekers arrived in 1980 alone. By 1985, the number of asylum applications per year had grown to more than 16,000. And in 1988, more than 50,000 asylum applications were received by the US government. And the numbers only tell part of the story, Freelich points out too. In this latter phase, refugees coming to North America in the 1980s were more likely than, than previous refugee influxes to come from the so-called third world, to be dark-skinned, non-English speaking, and poor, often from Central America and the Caribbean. This changing character and volume of refugee movements provides the essential backdrop to understand the government's decision to reinstitute immigration detention in the United States. Okay, so with growing pressure from a widening flow of asylum seekers, the Reagan administration used its policy of Haitian detention to deter asylum seekers from all over Latin America. Haitians would be the test case. And so in May 1981, immigration officials under Reagan instituted a policy of detaining all undocumented Haitians without the possibility of bond. And this was the moment when our modern system of immigration detention was officially reborn. One year later, more than 2,000 Haitians occupied a growing network of detention facilities, with hundreds of Haitians scattered across the country, imprisoned in federal penitentiaries in Florida, Kentucky, New York, Texas, West Virginia, and Missouri, and in jails and even hospitals and other makeshift centers across the nation. Now, until the spring of 1982, the Reagan administration was focusing its newly rediscovered detention powers almost exclusively on Haitians. Indeed, an internal memo to Reagan's chief of staff, James Baker, candidly observed that the continued, quote, the continued arrival of Haitians drives our current policy of detention. So we might ask, what led to detention's expansion to other groups? The answer, again, lies in the government's efforts to circumvent a legal challenge brought by Haitian prisoners to its detention authority. In June 1982, U.S. District Court Judge Eugene Spellman ruled on a case called Louis v. Nelson, a class action lawsuit brought by Haitian detainees seeking their freedom. The district court judge found that the government's detention program had violated the procedures set forth by the Administrative Procedures Act, which required a public notification of policy changes and was thus null and void. Judge Spellman ordered an end to the Haitian detention program and restored the parole policy that had existed prior to May 20, 1981, when the Haitian detention policy was put in place. The court also ordered the government to release the 1,800 Haitian detainees represented by the class action lawsuit. The Haitian Refugee Center and lots of other immigration and civil rights groups hailed the Spellman decision as an historic legal decision. But, like the Carter administration before it, the Reagan administration responded to the court's ruling that had declared the detention program illegal, not by ending it, but by meeting the law's statutory requirements so that it can continue its detention program. To satisfy the requirements of the Administrative Procedures Act, the government published its new detention policy, and according to the newly published policy, mandatory detention would now be expanded to all inadmissible aliens. In other words, 
Detention was no longer only for Haitians, but henceforth could be applied to all asylum seekers and authorized migrants. Arthur Helton of the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights wryly observed that the new detention policy is designed to mistreat all equally. Indeed, to provide legal cover to its Haitian detention program, the Reagan administration had just opened the door to the massive expansion of immigration detention that would follow, and that's what leads us to where we are today. In fact, the Reagan administration recognized it was laying the groundwork for a detention system that could absorb many more groups in the future. As the president's chief of staff wrote in an internal memo, quote, alien detention requirements are not expected to diminish in the future, regardless of the Haitian population. Further influxes of illegal aliens can be expected, and this administration should be prepared to deal with its future detention requirements, close quote. And so as the 1980s progressed, a growing number of those in detention were refugees from Central America who were fleeing the bloody civil wars and activities of US-backed death squads in places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. The expanding detention system now swallowed up these groups right along with Haitians. And the number of INS detention facilities and the agency's overall capacity continued to grow for the rest of the decade. By October 1985, INS detention facilities were holding 22 to 2,300 prisoners on any given day. By 1986, the number of INS-owned and operated facilities had grown from five to seven, and the government was employing more than 1,000 additional non-service detention facilities to hold immigrant detainees, including federal prisons, state and local jails, and a growing number of privately owned and operated for-profit detention centers. By the way, um, immigration prisons were the first private and for-profit prisons in this country. The US Committee for Refugees reported that the number of aliens in INS detention as of April 19, 1986 had grown to more than 3,000 and now included Afghans, Iranians, and Salvadorans, as well as Haitians and Cubans. Under Reagan's successor, President George H.W. Bush, the detention network grew even further. The most dramatic expansion of the government's use of detention by the Bush administration came in the lower Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, where beginning in February 1989, the INS carried out a concentrated campaign to deter, again, to deter Central American refugees from coming to the United States. Here again, mass detention was used to deter unauthorized migration and resulted in the incarceration of thousands of men, women and children. And what was the blueprint for this campaign against Central American asylum seekers in 1989? The Haitian program of the late 1970s. Thus, Haitians were not only the group for which the policy of detention was reinstituted in 1981, their legal resistance led the government to expand its detention policy to all unauthorized migrants in 1982, and what's more, the lessons the government learned in its dealing with Haitians continued to inform its treatment of Central American other asylum seekers subsequently and to this day. And finally, so when in the autumn of 1990, 1991, a new flood of refugees began fleeing a coup in Haiti, the government again used Haitians as the model for its future detention policies. Let me explain how. Refugees from the coup were first detained aboard, oops, were first detained on board US Coast Guard cutters, and then again, when pressed by a lawsuit on behalf of the Haitian refugees, the government transferred the Haitians to the US naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. A decade before Guantanamo became a controversial extraterritorial prison in the so-called 
war on terror. It was used to detain Haitian refugees. Haitians were the original Guantanamo detainees, and not only were Haitians the original Guantanamo detainees, but they were the original immigrant detainees in our current system of immigration detention. Thanks. Thank you everyone for coming today. It's very brave of you to come out. I don't think I would be able to handle this topic today if I wasn't speaking. But um, if you weren't depressed enough about our future, now we can be depressed about our past. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what's wrong with the present. <laughs> so we all know what happened in the past couple of days. It really throws things into a little bit of a new context. Uh, I've talked a lot about what's happening with family detention on the border. Usually, the talks I give talk about the progress that we've made, how much progress we still have to make. It feels a little awkward talking about that now because we have taken an enormous step backwards. And so I, I'm not really sure how to direct people at this point, but I will tell you what's been happening, progress that has been made, and where we might be headed in the future. Um, a, you know, I'm going to talk about family detention. When I say family detention, what I mean is the detention of mothers with small children. And this has been happening since the summer of 2014. And everyone who is in the facilities that I'll be speaking about are mothers with children, no males. Uh, males have been released on their own, sometimes men separated from their sisters so they can be released while women and children are detained. So this is specifically what I'm going to be talking about, and there's a couple of points I want you to take away from this. One is, this came from the top. This came from the administration. And so I know that there's a lot of good feeling about the Obama administration, and there's a lot to be happy about. But even under this administration, that we consider to be an administration of tolerance, there have been human rights violations that I have not seen before, at least in my professional experience that, that started under this administration. The other thing to realize is just how much power the executive actually does have. I see a lot of people talking about, well, you know, how much power does the president have? A lot in this context. When it comes to what can happen to foreign nationals, detention policy, uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, who is a priority for detention, uh, the president sets a very strong tone and has a lot of authority about how these programs run, including incarceration of immigrants. So it's something to keep in mind going forward, not to make it worse, but, but you know, and, and another problem is, has been what people talk about, what has been said in this campaign, a lot of it has been, of course, false. I mean, it's very nice to be here in this environment tonight with people who I know I can speak to about this, it's a little scary driving around out there now and in the America I thought I knew, but you know, we could talk about, about this a little more honestly. Now, I've heard a lot in the news, you know, Donald Trump saying, well, we need to build a wall, we need enforcement. 
giving the impression that immigrants are just running over the border and being welcomed in. Of course, I heard him say he was inviting them into the country so they could come in and vote. Um, obviously, that is not how it works. Uh, there is very heavy enforcement on the border. There, we have uh, Customs and Border Patrol. There is over 60,000 employees. There is a wall on the border already. It doesn't cover everything because that would be a tremendous amount of work. There's a river. There's a lot of uh, terrain where a wall is not necessarily practical, but it's, but it's there. Um, this is deportations. President Obama has deported more immigrants than any other president in history. So deportations way up under President Obama. Um, it spiked. We had almost a half a million, but still, you know, three, over 300,000 in fiscal year 2014, and then going on to 235,000 in fiscal year 2015. A lot of people being deported, a lot of people being detained. So what happened? Uh, in the summer of 2014, there was a surge of family immigration. A lot of people coming over the border, a lot of minors coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and, uh, and El Salvador. And the, I guess the information coming back from the country to the Obama administration was that the word on the street in these countries is that we go easy on women and children. So they had the impression that because our administration goes easy on women and children, this was the cause of masses of women and children coming up over the border. So we saw these surges and the administration said, okay, well, I guess we need to do something about that. And what they chose to do was specifically target this population to send a message back home. They, we wanted to send a message to the people in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that we do not go easy on women and children, that we will detain them and we will make it difficult for them. And I mean, unfortunately, I have a friend who works in the administration who I've argued with about this with, and he says, well, it, it kind of worked. I said, that's not the point. That's not how it works. But this was their policy. Now, from our perspective, we see a lot of motivating factors. We don't have people coming in to the country in these numbers from other countries. What we see is these countries, and why? Honduras, number one for homicide worldwide. El Salvador, four for homicide. Guatemala, five for homicide. Gang violence is absolutely rampant. Uh, femicide is way up in these countries. It's off the charts. And what we see, in all the women that I've met there and women that we've represented in our law firm have been through unspeakable acts of domestic violence, gang brutality, uh, very, very sexualized crimes. So it's not always clearly domestic violence, but it's sexualized crimes from gang members. Um, very terrible violence. Uh, the children have seen things that that have probably will traumatize them for life, and they're coming in and being brought right into our detention system. Uh, they've had to navigate threats. Uh, young girls, we've seen uh, sexual violence against young girls, a lot of uh, traumatizing stuff. Um, so I want to explain what asylum is, because you have to understand the, the laws around detention of foreign nationals in this country. Now, uh, Carl had mentioned something called expedited removal, which came up for the Haitians. If someone comes into the country, they're caught within 100 miles of the border. They could be subjected to something called expedited removal, which means we detain you and you get you out as soon as we can. Now, the exception is if someone says, wait, I'm actually afraid to go back to my home country because I'm afraid that harm will befall me there. If someone says that, you have to stop the process, 
and that person is entitled to have an interview with an asylum officer. And if that officer thinks they might have a shot at being a refugee, they have to let them stay in the country. Now, before they have that interview, or if there's no fear of going back, yes, they can send them home. But once it's established that they have a shot at asylum, it's a different situation entirely. At that point, the only reason to detain them under US law is if they are a flight risk, so they won't appear for their proceedings, or if they are a security risk. So, and what is political asylum? Someone with a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country on the basis of a protected ground, race, religion, nationality, a particular social group. They can't have government protection and they cannot relocate within the country. So most of the people that I've met in the facilities meet this standard. And most of the clients we've represented ultimately did win asylum cases once they were released. This is um, basically that, the detention, security risk and flight risk. That's important because when the US government wants to continue to detain somebody who has been found to potentially be a refugee, the only way to continue to detain them is by arguing they are either a flight risk or a security risk. So what happened? They opened a facility. This was in June of 2014 in Artesia, New Mexico. Artesia, New Mexico, I've been there. I flew into Santa Fe, and it took me about three and a half hours to get to this town. It's a small oil town with no airport, no easy way to get to it. There's no immigration lawyers. There's really nothing going on. They picked them up at the border and would drive them to this facility in Artesia, New Mexico. It is a federal law enforcement training facility. They had a section of it that they weren't using, so they turned it into a makeshift jail, basically, for mothers and their children. That's 672 beds. Uh, it was pretty much full by the time they, they closed it down. So, and that includes mothers and children. They had them in kind of small trailers where they kept them, the mothers always with their children. And when this started, no one had any access to counsel. So what they did, the government would bring them in, detain them in this facility. They would ask them if they were afraid to go home. If they said yes, they gave them an asylum interview or a credible fear interview with an asylum officer shipped down. And if they failed, then they would get them right out on the next plane. By the time immigration advocates made it down there in July, they had already sent out three plane loads of people. So it was very get them in, get them out. So why were they not passing their credible fear interviews if they qualified for asylum? Well, it's, you have to consider when somebody is detained and they don't have access to an attorney, they don't understand asylum law. They're depressed. They're afraid, they're in jail, they have a small child with them. In many cases, mothers would have to take in their baby. Many were breastfeeding, they had small infants, and they're trying to talk to an officer about some of the most traumatizing things that have ever happened to them in that environment. So what we saw then is almost everybody was failing their interviews and getting out on the next plane. Very, very rapid. Now, it took a while for advocates to realize this was happening, and once it did happen, there were a lot of immigration lawyers that decided to go down and try to give these women representation, which got a little bit complicated, because the lawyers would go down and say, we would like to represent the clients that are inside. And they would say, uh, no, you don't have access because they are not your clients. So they, they would not let the lawyers in just to go find people to represent. 
And so the lawyer said, but wait a minute, we, we would like them to know that we are out here and we are here to represent them. And they said, no, we're not going to let you in unless you have permission from a specific client. So we couldn't get access into the building to have anyone call us their lawyer. And they just wouldn't let us in. So what we had to do was eventually network with other organizations that were allowed to go in. So religious organizations that were allowed to go in, provide religious services. We would give our cards, give our cards, and sometimes the cards would be taken away from them. But we kept trying, and over time, finally you had some clients who would say, no, that's my lawyer, I want them in the building. Once that happened, once the lawyers had an in, you know, at that point, they could pass information on to all their friends, and more and more cards, and more and more clients could say, these are my lawyers, I want representation. Now, in immigration proceedings, immigrants do have a constitutional right to be represented by counsel at their own expense. The government does not have to provide it, but if someone wants a lawyer and has one and can afford it, they are entitled to it constitutionally. So the fact that all these lawyers were here volunteering to be their lawyers, to deny that to them is a constitutional violation. Uh, just to give you an idea of the facility, this is not an authorized photo, but it's just so cute. Um, so <laughs> this was in 2014. I went down in August. In July, the first lawyers went down. Obviously, going down to Artesian, New Mexico was not easy for immigration lawyers practicing full time. So what had to happen was rotations. A lawyer would go down for a week. Another lawyer would go down for a week. One week, there might be three lawyers. One week, 10 lawyers. And we had 630 clients or so, and the clients that you just met yesterday. So we go down, and this is the space which we were given to meet with, with clients, probably about the distance maybe from here to that wall. You see the tables all crammed together. This is clients trying to talk about extremely personal situations, uh, facts that they don't want to share, just crammed in next to each other. So it was a very difficult situation. And in addition to that, if you can imagine this room filled with attorneys trying to meet with clients, and small children running around everywhere while you're doing it. That was the thing that was the most striking about it. You'd have babies crawling around next to you, uh, toddlers running around, you know, making paper airplanes and throwing them everywhere. I mean, it was just wild, very surreal. Uh, Carn City is a new facility that, that opened. It's been open since August 2014, and that is still open. Artesia eventually closed. Uh, and Dilly is the big one. Dilly was a brand new facility. It is corporate run, of course. Uh, over $300 per inmate per day, taxpayer money. This is going straight to the corporation, CCA. So it's capacity 2,400 people. It is not at capacity now, but it has been. So, and again, all the representation that people get in this facility is just volunteers, lawyers, translators, but there's not a lot that someone can do if they're not a lawyer. So it depends on lawyers just giving up their time, flying down there at great expense. And then it's sort of like a, you know, you pass the torch. One person's there for a week, you just started learning about the clients and what they need. You pass it on to the next lawyer and, and see what they can do with it. But it's a very messy system. It's obviously not the best way to have representation for these individuals. <clears throat> But these are the, this, the current alliance now is the American Immigration Lawyers Association. That's the group that was working in Artesia, a Catholic Legal Immigration Network Clinic, Refugee and Immigration Center for Education and Legal Service, RAICES, and the American Immigration Council. RAICES is really managing the efforts in Carnes City. They do accept volunteers if people want to go. 
and the rest of us are working um, dilly. And we have a lot of off-site volunteers too, so if anyone is interested in helping with that, feel free to talk to me afterwards. Um, this is everything the volunteers do when they're down there. Intakes, preparing them for interviews, hearings, um, attending uh, the interviews with them, which is almost impossible when we had 2,000 people. Sometimes there were 12 or even up to 20 interviews in a day. Some days we only had three or four attorneys on the ground. So we, people were not able to get access to counsel all the time. Bond hearings, asylum hearings, and preparing documents. Now at first, the government's position was, we talked about you, you could only be released, or you could only be detained if you were a flight risk or a security risk. So the government's position at first was that every single person in the facility was a security risk to the United States. Because if they were released, if any of them were released, it would send that message again that we were soft. And so it, it, their argument was at that point there would be a flood of immigrants and then we wouldn't have the resources to protect the country against terrorism. This was actually their argument and they relied on case law from some of what happened with the Haitians. So Haitian detent, there was, when boat people came in in the early 2000s or so, there was a case that said, well, yeah, actually, we need to detain them because it actually is a threat to our country if we let all these people come in and don't detain them. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but this was the government's actual brief until uh, there was a court ruling February of last year finding that that was not a legitimate reason to detain somebody. You cannot say blanket every person in a facility is a security risk just because you want to send a message to the home country that that is not valid and it's not constitutional. Uh, as far as a flight risk, again, they would say, well, they're all flight risk, and the court said, no, you have to make an individualized determination with each case. So what, what happens now, in the beginning, the government would take the position that nobody could be released, even if they qualified for asylum, even if they passed a credible fear interview. They would not release them because they were security risk. They stopped doing that. Um, before, we would try to argue this to the judges, and the judges would say, well, okay, they are a security risk, but we'll release them if they pay a $50,000 bond, $20,000 bond. I saw up to a $100,000 bond. I think uh, my last day there in Artesia, I had a mother who was 20,000, her teenage son was 14,000, and each of the little girls under four were 3,000, was the bond set So it was a lot of crying, you know, as we're familiar with these, these days. You know, everybody was tired, and everyone down there would come out of their hearings just pouring tears. And uh, that has changed a little bit, because we've had some successes with case law, including that case in 20 in 2015. So now bonds tend to be along the lines of 3,000, 4,000. So a lot of advocacy, a lot of pushing has really convinced the courts to bring these down and convinced the government to take a slightly different position. I'm trying to bring a lot of media attention to this too. Okay, so I'm, I'm over time, but just a few quick points. This is, these are basically the, the concerns with detention, inadequate medical care. We saw lots of medical issues. If you can imagine, I don't know if anyone has kids, but when they go to school, a lot of times someone gets sick and all the kids go home with it. Of course, it's a detention facility with thousands of kids all together in one space. You know, all kinds of rampant sicknesses, uh, people not being able to translate. A lot of people don't even speak Spanish. A lot of uh, Mayan languages spoken there. I'll skip the timeline. I'll just 
I just do the timeline real quick. Just so you have an idea, this is where we are with this. Artesia opened in 2014. Uh, the advocacy efforts grew and grew. Now we have a network of off-site volunteers trying to help people down there. Um, we have, in 2015, Artesia closed. That was positive, but now we have the facility in Dilly, which is 2,000 beds. I don't know if that's better or worse. Um, we had a decision holding that if you're going to give somebody bond, it has to be individualized, no more $100,000 bonds, that changed. And then another decision of a case called Flores, which I won't get into now, but it, basically a court in the Ninth Circuit held that they cannot keep children for very long. There had already been an agreement with the government in place for a long time that when you detain children, there's a lot of requirements you have to comply with for the welfare of children. And the government said, well, that doesn't apply here. We keep the moms with them. So they're fine. They don't need all those protections. And the Ninth Circuit Court found that that was not the case. So we moved from people being detained on an average of three or four months to being detained an average of maybe two or three weeks. But the facility's still opening. It's still open. There's still hundreds of people in it. And they still need a lot of help. Um, thanks for sticking around to listen to me. Um, I am Mizue. I have been working on this particular issue uh, since maybe before some of you were born. Um, and it's just really incredible. And I say this not to, aid, to date myself, really, but, you know, it's like your life becomes like a series of, it's like a slideshow almost, right? Like, what are the things that define the moment in which you live? We've heard a lot of that about, you know, Haiti, and I think family detention of the moment, but, you know, it's the first time I've, I've been, the first president I really, really remember is uh, living under the policies of rape, okay? And so it's always like you think it can't get any worse. Mm -hmm. It's always going to get worse, but that's no reason to stop fighting, right? So I think a lot of us feel like something maybe bad has happened this week. <laughs> But it's been bad for a long time. And that's the inspiration we draw from, is the struggle over centuries and centuries of injustice. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But I just wanted to just so forgive me for those of you who already know a lot of this history. I just want to put together for you the slideshow of my life, of our politics, and how we got to this moment, where a person with a criminal conviction is regarded as one of the top threats to national safety. Um, I work in an organization in New York City called the Immigrant Defense Project. We do uh, a lot of different things. We provide a hotline to people, really, but, and we do uh, defender support, attorney support, and we do advocacy, but really at this intersection of people who are policed, imprisoned, um, and uh, then consequently detained and deported as immigrants. And, you know, one thing that I've just, in hearing a lot of what people talk about, it's complicated. Immigration law is really complicated by design. It's written by a lot of people who know nothing about immigration except that they don't want immigrants here, right? So I think, you know, the takeaway really is this whole system of detention is so that they can deport as many people as possible with as little due process rights as possible, okay? And so just, you know, a little bit of historical context from uh, the first recorded deportation from President Cleveland up to President Clinton, this is the total number of people deported by the US government. 
Uh, George Bush, the war on terror president, kind of upped up the game, right, to two million. And as the previous speaker mentioned, President Obama, under his administration, kind of kept the machine moving forward uh, at an even greater rate. Um, and, you know, when we talk, talk about immigration, it's a very complicated issue, right? As uh, Professor Hernandez pointed out, like, there are people who cross the border without papers. There are people who come here with a visa, and then their visa expires. Now they're undocumented. There are people who come here with, as a green card holder, right? So there's, you know, and there are different laws. People seeking asylum. There's different laws that affect all these different categories. And, you know, when you are in a place like New York or Massachusetts, the border is very far, right? But in the political imagination of the U.S., the border is everywhere, right? And so it's really important to think about, like when I was in college, most everyone could just walk back and forth across the border, right? Now there already is a wall, right? As the speaker said, there already is a wall there, right? So we have more than 625 miles. You look at the largest policing agency now in the country is the Border Patrol, right? In the 80s, 2000, up, upwards of 20,000 now. And then, you know, again, the issue that we're here to talk about today is the number of people detained in immigrant detention every day. Um, and so as, you know, David mentioned, it's a, uh, what we're experiencing now is part of a continuum, right? So when we think of the formation of the United States as a settler colony, it very much depends on exclusion and removal, who belongs, who doesn't belong, right? And we don't have time to go into this, but you know, the history is that it could be almost any, any reason. The, the target is shifting. The consistent reason is we don't want you here, right? And it's often because you're not white, you're not of the right religion, you don't fit the profile. So you know, the very first forced removal of the Native Americans, we have you know, people who were anarchists and communists targeted during the Palmer raids in the 1919. We have you know, people who are suspected of being uh, runaway slaves, being you know, rounded up by cops and, and forced back into slavery. And then this is just a photo of uh, Mexican forcible removal where um, you know, anywhere from half a million to two million Mexicans, many of them third, fourth generation because California used to be Mexico, were forcibly removed during the Great Depression. So, you know, we could go on and on and on, but the point here really is that, you know, as we live life, it's a continuum, the target shifts, and, you know, so, like I said, social struggles make certain things not acceptable anymore, right? So in this, you know, there are many messed up things about living here today, and maybe, you know, things will change with the next administration about what we can and cannot say. But it's generally not acceptable nowadays to say, you know, black people must all be removed from this country, right? But, or Latino people must all be locked up, right? So then it's the labels of the so-called illegal, the so-called criminal, the alien, right? So we're in this very neutral uh, language that does what uh, David was saying, it obscures really what is the underlying both um, logic behind the system, but then also who's most greatly impacted. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, we are living in the era where the criminal alien has been named as the primary threat to national security. Um, and, you know, I think in part, like I say, history is a continuum, it's because you don't really need to say anything to people, right? If I said to you, well, that immigrant's a criminal, or, or he's a gang member, all of a sudden you have this image like, oh, I know what, that's, that's scary. Right? Or, oh, those people are crossing the border and the, you know, the wall in that way, they're coming in hordes, right? Or, uh, and so just to say that, you know, when President Obama in 2014 made a speech, which in many ways was monumental, right? Do you guys remember November 2014? He made this announcement that he wants to extend 
through his presidential authority, some temporary protection to certain groups of immigrants, right? DACA, we all know what that is, deferred action, right? And I want to extend it to parents also. But let's be clear, we don't want to protect those felons, right? We're protecting felons, and we're getting rid of felons, not families, criminals, not children, right? Gang members. Um, and so now, God, I have so much to say. We're on the uh, coming of a new administration. And I just wanted to say, when I saw uh, this was released yesterday, that person's agenda, you know, I was like, almost every, the top five things are what I work on, right? So you look at like every unconstitutional action, he's targeting immigrants there. You know, um, sanctuary cities, you know, he's targeting immigrants there. But then the fourth one, begin removing the more than two million criminal illegal immigrants from the country and cancel visas to foreign countries that won't take them back, right? So this is the political context we're operating in. The point here is it's new, it's a little bit new, it's a little bit different, but it's a little bit more of the same old thing. So I'll keep moving. All right, so um, I've been asked to talk about the intersection between the war, the mass incarceration, mass deportation, and you know, this is very condensed, so I uh, apologize for shorthand or uh, big important pieces of scholarship and history that I'm leaving out. But, you know, as we know, there's very good, strong scholarship that the, the whole mass incarceration system kind of evolved out of, you know, the post-slavery reconstruction, right? So how is it that we continue to maintain a power balance of white supremacy and this whole system became established through that? And, you know, in the 1960s, kind of fast forwarding a little bit to the war on crime, you know, now it's been revealed more recently that it's very clear what is the function of this war on crime, right? You guys can see that it's saying, well, we got to target the hippies, the anti-war left, and the blacks, right? And this was explicitly known by the Nixon administration. So just another example of kind of what we call, I would call, stealing your thing, <laughs> obscuring kind of the actual underlying motive of these policies that seem neutral. Um, so just real quickly on the war on crime, you know, I think the key things to, that are really important as we think about like Black Lives Matter and policing and all this stuff is these ideas around the need to control chaos through more policing really came up in the 60s, right, under a democratic administration of Lyndon B. Johnson, right? And then they kind of evolved into Richard Nixon, like I just said before, where he was very concerned about the anti-war uh, hippies and kind of, you know, um, uprisings in black communities as well uh, to a, a war on crime and particular uh, communities of color. Then we have um, Nancy Reagan, Just Say No to Drugs, and Ronald Reagan, where Reagan elevated the war on drugs to a national security issue, right? He was like, the Colombians are sending drugs all over, all over the place um, and to our border. So Florida and Texas uh, became really sites, and the, the whole notion of the border being a site for the war on drugs really came into being under Reagan. Sorry, I know this is like a lot of stuff really fast, but it means so much to me. Okay, and then this guy, Newt Gingrich, anyone know him? <laughs> okay, so he's going to come back again, I'm pretty sure. Um, but so, you know, the other piece of it, we'll come back to Newt in a second. Um, the other piece of what's happening in the 80s is there's the war on drugs, right? Which means there's a, a, actually a pretty significant prison overcrowding problem. All of a sudden they pass these laws, now all of a sudden there are all these people in jail. And part of them, especially in places like in New York and Florida, a lot of them happen to be immigrants, right? So we have like the New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato saying, we gotta get rid of these criminal aliens. 
with a particular focus on Cuba, right? So you referenced in the 80s, Carl uh, did the, these migrations that were pretty significant on the political spectrum in the 80s, and it was, you know, these uh, Cubans that Fidel Castro basically said, you know, go come to this port and you can go to the United States, and then the Haitians, right, which were fleeing a brutal regime backed by the U.S. government, of course. And so, you know, I think part of the point of this is that, uh, and, the, and the Cubans were characterized as being mostly criminals, right? Um, which actually turned out that they weren't. But these are things that hold very strongly in the political imagination. And also, in the Florida, the Haitians were characterized as being drug traffickers. They're crack dealers, right? So in addition to being, you know, the people seeking asylum, there was a crazy senator in Florida who also was uh, pushing for much harder drug policies with the idea that Cubans, that Cubans, Haitians were spreading crack all over the place. So anyway, well, that's a lot of history that I can't talk about right now. Um, but the, really mostly the point is, you know, as we've seen the war on crime play out, right, here you see the mass incarceration going up and you see violent crime going down. There's no real logic to it, right? So when we say national security is helped by deporting criminal aliens, you're gonna find a very similar graph. There's actually no evidence to support this. It's all ideology and politics are targeting very particular groups of people. So kind of moving then to another issue to put this in historical context is, you know, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there became a growing notion that we're being invaded by black and brown people, right? Something has to stop. And I think one of the things that, you know, if we lived in this time in the 90s, the issue of, of the drain on the welfare system was very prominent, right? And this kind of also comes out of the war on crime. There are certain people who suck our society dry, and we have to lock them up and get rid of them, right? So this is Newt Gingrich's contract with, with America, and then, uh, then President Clinton talking about the whole welfare reform bill. All right, and just one more thing about history before we get to the mid-90s is uh, Proposition 187. Who was alive when this was happening? <laughs> Who was on the streets when this was happening? <laughs> Okay, so, because this was really crazy, right? Pete Wilson, Governor Pete Wilson, played a very significant role in fomenting this kind of very anti-immigrant, anti um, what's it called, nativist uh, movement in California. And this is really, I think, a lot of the origins of what we see in terms of the, you know, prop, uh, the, the different propositions that we've seen um, and the idea that immigrants have no place um, in U.S. society. And so this is just a photo from one of the protests around 187. Um, and this notion of illegal aliens taking away money. Um, but also, like I said, the fight back was really strong and important. All right. Last ideological stronghold of this moment, as we know, is the war on terror, right? And so um, there were other terror incidents before 9-11 that really helped inform um, immigration policy. And I just wanted to, just in case people didn't know, point that out. All right, so 1996 immigration laws. So I just want to pause on this for a moment because this was the last time there was any kind of immigration law in the U.S., right? And also because they were extremely punitive. So a culmination of all these things that I was just talking about right here under the Clinton administration and the 96 laws. And basically what they did, they did a lot of things. But I think the, the key things, the takeaways are they expanded what we've been talking about here, mandatory detention 
vastly, right? Um, so basically the idea that for almost any conviction you have, from jumping a turnstile, uh, to shoplifting, to selling a little amount of drugs, to selling a massive amount of drugs, it's all under the same law for you that you're gonna get locked up, right? Even if you went in front of a judge in the criminal justice system and they said, well, you have to pay a $50 fine, it doesn't matter to immigration, right? Even if you go to drug court and there's like, you do this for a year, stay clean, and we'll eliminate your conviction, that doesn't matter for immigration. You still have a conviction in their mind, okay? So it, the, the punitive aspects of this are so beyond comprehension, and this is a lot of what we deal with at IDP, at my organization, because people don't believe it, right? They're like, what are you talking about? This happened to me 18 years ago. I paid a fine, I never did jail time. What do you mean I'm gonna get deported? I'm a green card holder, I've lived here for 40 years. It doesn't matter to the US government, right? And so this is when we look at the numbers, this is why they can get those massive numbers of people because it is so easy to deport people. And so when they passed these laws, they were very concerned about people not being locked up so it's, it's easier for them to deport people, right? So the idea being, um, and the previous speaker talked about, you don't necessarily have a lawyer when you're in immigration court. 80% of people represent themselves. So imagine if one day you are walking to work, you're picked up by immigration, you're thrown into detention, you lose your job, you lose your apartment, you're there for months, you don't even know what's happening, right? You're just waiting for your hearing to happen. You know, a lot of people just decide, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get out of here because there's no other avenue for me than out. And this, the system by design is, is set up by design to make people want to self-deport, right? So one of the things, like I mentioned, is there's very, uh, uh, almost any conviction you can think of can trigger deportation. But what they also did most importantly was they made a very wide range of convictions uh, mandatorily detainable and mandatorily deportable, which means, oh, I gotta hurry up. Sorry, it was bad. So all this stuff happened, you guys. History, history is important. <laughs> And this is why you should stay in school. Okay, so this is just really important here. Marijuana, has anyone here smoked pot? No, just don't tell me. Marijuana is obviously one of the biggest things that the cops catch people on, because they can smell it and they know how to do that. So then, if you look at why people are being deported, look at what's number four, right? And the, other, the top three are just because you're undocumented. Those aren't even things that can get you deported. But marijuana possession is one of the driving things. So just to answer this question, why don't people just get in line? Why are people so uh, illegal? Just to be clear, there's been no way for someone who's undocumented to get a path to citizenship since 1986, right? So you could have lived here for whatever many years that is, 30 years, 20 years. It's a little more complicated than that. But for most people, there's no way to get... Uh, any kind of legal status. And then even if you do, you have to wait for so long, right? So the examples you often hear about the Philippines, people are waiting 24 years to get a visa. That's crazy. All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, this, but I can't. I just want to say that these are people, right? Like these are people that we fight for and fight alongside and that there are a whole wide range of people. You know, Howard's a veteran. He was deported. He is deported for um, having a marijuana conviction. You know, Roland is uh, someone who came here as a child from Haiti and he was uh, facing mandatory deportation because he forged a name on a ticket and told the cop right away um, and they were going to deport him for that. 
you know, Khalil, someone who I worked very closely with, who did time in prison, but he rebuilt his life. You know, he basically, he went to college, he mentors all these people, he has a family, and immigration came to his house five years later and threw him in detention. And you know, the underlying theme of all these people is they have no way out, right? So if it isn't for people like us advocating for them, there's really no way out of the system. Um, and then, you know, I, just about this moment, you know, I think the, uh, we can't underestimate the power of uh, not only ideology, we know that, but of, of institutions and infrastructure, right? And one thing that happened after 9-11 um, uh, is DHS effectively merged all this stuff into the largest policing apparatus in the world. Right? So look at this budget, billions of dollars now spent to arrest, lock up, and deport immigrants and keep them out. Um, it's, the largest, it's, it's the largest law enforcement agency. It's larger than actually every other federal law enforcement agency combined in terms of budget. Um, and the other thing that's really important for people to know is that they very effectively, over the last administration, have employed all police across the country as a force multiplier. That's what they call it. So they say, we can't be everywhere, but police are, so now we're going to join forces with them. Um, and this is just what we do. You know your rights to people. This is the ways we show them, how many ways you can get caught up in the system. Sorry, I know I'm running out of time. But I just want to say, because this is really important, a key aspect of the war on terror is the surveillance state, right? And we're all part of it. Anyone who has a driver's license is part of the FBI's you know, database, your facial recognition database, anyone who's ever given a fingerprint to immigration is part of that database. And that, you know, all, these are all the ways they're finding people uh, and, and identifying them to deport when they want to, or if you do political activism work, to target you in that way as, as well. Um, and I just wanted to also say that, you know, these are, are uh, signs from a political protest um, and that, you know, we all are responsible also for being really clear in our political work, like what does our messaging convey, right? And that there's always this notion that, well, I might be really low, but I'm not as low as that person. And I'm just making the argument that we're never going to get anywhere if that's the way we operate um, and that we have to challenge the idea of the good versus bad immigrant. All right, last point, really, is why does all this happen? Why? Right? Why is mobility such an important thing? Right? So I just wanted to just show this example that someone do this really cool thing of the rank of passports. Right? If you have a US passport, you basically have a passport to the world. Has anyone been denied and going anywhere really that you wanted to go? Probably not, right? But if you're from these places, like obviously Palestine, Burma, you know, you can't go anywhere, right? And so why does this, you know, when we think about something like this that might look familiar to most people, I think only, what, 3% of the world has ever traveled internationally, right? So think about it. The, the idea of mobility is something that's a privilege for a very few select people, right? This is, do you guys know what this is? This is Haiti, right? But is it Haiti for Haitians? No. This is also Haiti, right? So that's the way other people travel from boat out of Haiti. This is a uh, Central Americans driving on a freight train through Mexico. And then just kind of ending with um, a, has anyone seen these set of photos? You have, Debbie, right? This is a enclave in Morocco, right? It's a Spanish enclave um, where these Africans, uh, migrants travel for months, they camp out for months for an opportunity to jump the fence. Oh, bam. All right, that's it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
So uh, thank you to our audience and thank you to, to this amazing panel. As you can see, the scope of the situation is very large. I know a few people need to leave, but we do have time for some questions. Um, and so uh, I need to see hands in order to do that. And uh, I will start right here. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it, personally. I mean, that is, I've been telling DACA students, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to DACA students about their options, and they're all asking what, would, what happens if Trump is elected. And I said, well, that is actually one thing that he could do entirely within his power. He could end it on day one. Oh, sorry, yes. He, uh, the president could eliminate DACA. He would, ha he would have the authority to do that. The, the problem with DACA is it, it was entirely circumvented Congress. So it was an executive action, he could cancel it. As far as what would happen to those people, you're right, they are exposed. They do know where they are. If he really wanted to start an aggressive deportation initiative and send a message, they would be low-hanging fruit, unfortunately. I, I hope, we'd like to think that that's not what's going to happen, that he might take a somewhat milder approach and instead of rounding up all those folks, perhaps just canceling the program and denying extensions going forward or saying the program won't go on into the future. Uh, but unfortunately, many of you may know people with DACA. These people are in jobs. They've been working for years now. They've been traveling. They've been, so honestly, these, these are the clients that we have that, that we're the most concerned about. My paralegal's here too, and we're, we don't know what to say. Basically, we're setting up meetings with everybody to talk about their options and if we can find something else for them. We're, we're nervous. Can I just say one thing to that? Yeah. Um, when the uh, DHS was founded, Department of Homeland Security, they, they came up with a plan called Operation Endgame. And what that was was a 10-year strategic plan for ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. And the goal was to locate every single person that could be deportable in the country and then deport them, right? And so I think, you know, when I glazed over my surveillance part, it's like, I think we all, like I said, we all participate in this. Like everyone who has a smartphone is trackable, right? We're all, everyone's posting on Facebook. That's your social history right there. And, you know, if you study um, the, C the CIA, the FBI, like information is used when it's needed to attack certain people. So my guess is in terms of my projection of next year, we're gonna see first the people that I'm talking about and I work on behalf of and with the so-called people, criminal alien, that's number one, right? I think there's a lot of people who applied for DACA with criminal convictions, with convictions who didn't realize they're probably on that list of number two, right? So they operate on priorities. There's a limited number of immigration police. There's a limited number of detention beds. And I think we're just going to see the waves happen, you know? Okay, um, we, we, before the next question, I just want to add one thing is that when we talk about deporting criminals, we have to ask, what is the crime? And what, 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 is that, what constitutes that crime? And crossing the border undocumented is that crime. Uh, jumping the turnstile. So when they, uh, being deported is the crime. You know, and so all those things factor into that. And so when they say we're deporting the worst of the worst, it's, they're not. Um, question right here. We have a microphone. Oh, quite wonderful. 
you know, Puerto Ricans, I'm a Puerto Rican, I grew up in Puerto Rico, they, we don't understand the privilege of citizenship, and we're not informed. And right now, Puerto Ricans are being detained in Florida because of mistaken identity. So they're coming to realize that racism is out there. But I wanted to ask about how the AIDS epidemic framed the yeah, I mean, um, Haitians are one group historically that they've used the idea of disease and like the transmission of disease to especially stigmatize them and to justify their exclusion. Um, Haiti had, of course, the unfortunate distinction of there was this idea for a long, long time that that's where AIDS originated and that's how it came from. Um, to the United States. Haitians were amongst those four different groups um, to, to be identified as AIDS carriers and then to be singled out. Um, so it kind of happened at like the same time, but it definitely like reinforced um, this idea that, well, this is a group that's especially dangerous to us and we need to exclude or deport and detain. Um, and I think um, this there's this kind of sort of confluence or intersection of race and disease and the idea of the alien or the other that's politically useful at certain times and Haitians are probably not the only but one of the best groups that, that, that they've been able to use that against or I guess the biggest victims of that. Well there was an article about the weeks ago in the New York Times that AIDS uh, crossed the Atlantic to Haiti mm -hmm. and then from Haiti which is a, a way of minifying you know, mm -hmm. uh, Haitian people, mm -hmm. not as criminals, but you know, sick people per se. Mm -hmm. Right, there's a, quite a scholarly debate about the origins and the sort of migration of, of that particular disease, but, um, and I think it's on, ongoing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Another question? My question is uh, about flight risk. Uh, you mentioned it, and how does flight risk get determined? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, ankle monitoring devices as a, a better alternative, in some people's opinions, to detention. So uh, the question is about flight risk. Uh, normally, to show that someone is not a flight risk, we show that they have strong ties somebody who will take them in and make sure they appear for future hearings. Because they've had a credible fear interview, that means they might be a refugee, they're allowed to pursue their case, which means they're going to come before an immigration judge. That, that could take a long time, it could take a couple of years. And so the goal is to make sure they actually show up and don't just disappear. So we need to show that they actually have good intentions. So if they have someone whose house they can go to, who will vouch for them, who owns property, for example, who's a US citizen. So a lot of, for, for bond hearings, those are the kind of documents we get. We try to get someone in the community who will, who will write those kinds of letters and that can show they pay bills and have bank accounts and things like that. Uh, now, the ankle monitoring really took off in response to a lot of the litigation that was happening against these, these high bonds and keeping people detained. So one of their responses was to try to get people out on ankle bracelets. They call them the grilletes. And 
We don't like it because a lot of times if they, the government will set a bond of say 10,000 and they might get it reduced before the, the judge to say 3,000, 2,000. This ankle bracelet, some of them have them on for months and they, they can't go very far. They have to charge it several times a day. It's definitely onerous for them. And we don't believe if they are not a flight risk, we don't think they should have that either. Now, that became a big problem in, in Dili because what we started finding is the ICE officers would sort of corral the, the new inmates or residents, corral them into a courtroom and tell them about the ankle bracelet and try to get them to sign for it. And then before we knew, that, before we had a chance to even help them get bond, they would go on these ankle bracelets because the ICE officers would say, ah, oh, no, don't listen to the lawyers. If you, if you do this, you try for bond, you could be here months. And so, of course, they want to get out with their children. So en masse, they started signing for these ankle bracelets and leaving. But we're finding, I don't know if you know any, but a lot of people are coming to us now with these bracelets and they can't get rid of them. And even when they have gone and appeared for several hearings, sometimes they don't want to get rid of it. Um, some ICE officers are insisting that they show passports before they're willing to get rid of it, have passports for their children, which sometimes they're not able to get. Uh, a lot of our female clients can't get passports for their children because they need the signature of the husband who abused them and that they're fleeing from. So those are the kinds of issues we're seeing, but I do think it's preferable to detention for two or three months, certainly. Do you have any thoughts on that thing? Uh, I do, but maybe another question. Another question? <laughs> Um, hi. Um, I, a couple of you talked about the, the increased sort of spending that's being given towards um, the homeland security and the increased militarization at the border. I was wondering if you guys could touch on the fact that included with this funding is um, counterinsurgency training for border patrol agents. I know at um, the School of the Americas or WINSEC, which is down in Fort Benning, Georgia, um, this year was one of the first years that they started training border patrol agents. And we know that the School of the Americas has ties um, to the death squads that were sent and that had such an influence in Latin America. So just sort of the implications of hyper-militarization -milita of border patrol agents. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, in the early days, I can't remember when it was that kid was killed by the Marine. Oh. In the 90s, right? So kind of along the lines of like, so the justification for all of these becomes like the war on drugs or some kind of invasion, whether people are diseased or there's a, you know, terrorist carrying bombs and backpacks over the border. They will literally say this, right? Um, and so in the early days of around the war on drugs, they had a famous incident of a Marine shooting a boy who was a goat herder along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and there was a lawsuit and everything happened and, and there was no, never any accountability. And I think the determination by the U.S. government was the Marine was operating as he ought to in the line of duty. Um, and then in... You know, I think it's both things like the School of the Americas, but it's also, you know, they train, uh, you know, have you ever seen, what's it called, um, the junior, the ROTC, right? So when the military comes to schools and they train people to become soldiers, the Border Patrol is a very active program of doing that as well. Um, and, you know, particularly in communities along Texas, but uh, also in Buffalo and places like that where they're very depressed, right? And so, you know, policing, becoming a police officer becomes a, a path to a stable job. And I think, you know, one of the things that has happened a lot during the Obama administration below the radar is ongoing home raids, right? So people being, uh, 
knock on the door at 5.30 in the morning, seven armed officers, armed to the gills, kind of busting down your door as if you have like a meth lab in your house. No, I actually have a prior order of deportation and a 15-year-old marijuana sale conviction, right? And it doesn't matter. And I think part of the challenge that we faced as advocates is getting people to give Get care about this, right? Like, how have we gotten to a point in history where we can just hear about people being shot by cops every day, every week? We can hear about armed officers coming down and paying billions of dollars to do this and not really care. I'm not saying you people, but I'm just saying, like, societally, I think that it's part of like a. Someone tells me no one ever gets this boiling a frog. Do you know what that means? <laughs> like, yeah, you put a, a frog in water, and oh, then yeah. you turn up the heat, and all of a sudden it's dead because it doesn't jump out because it's too comfortable. And I think that's a moment that we live in now, right, where people are accustomed to, you know, Ferguson, those protests, right? That was a lot of that was DHS funding, Department of Homeland Security surplus equipment going to cops all over the country, you know, and uh, joint task forces everywhere. So I think you've touched on something that's really important and to think about ways where we can, uh, you know, use some of the strategies people used around the School of the Americas, but also really to make links between what's happening in our communities around police violence, police brutality, and the Department of Homeland Security uh, policing apparatus. Can I Thanks say something um, yes. okay, really quick to follow up? So I also think, um, as a historian, I also think history can kind of um, help us break out of that just being totally comfortable and accepting unacceptable things. And I think if you know, I'm thinking of two things. Uh, if we study like the sanctuary movement of the 1980s, what people did so courageously to protect Central American refugees, you know, if you really learn that history, it's amazing. And it was sort of gets you thinking creatively about what we could be doing, especially if DACA and DAPA are repealed and they start to come for our students and our community members and our brothers and sisters. Like, we could do a new sanctuary movement. We could also look at the history of um, resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act in the North, going further back. You know, like Northern communities said it's not okay for the federal government to come and capture these people and put them back into slavery, so they resisted directly, sometimes violently. Um, I think history can always be a, a sort of a tool for informing us about what we do politically now, and I think those are two examples that we might want to look at. Um, you actually started answering the question I was going to ask, which was, again, I really appreciate the historical context that you're giving, and you could talk more about what we can learn from history in terms of resistance movements, because um, we don't have, I mean, there have been strategies that have been affected, so you, you talked about the sanctuary movement, you know, I was thinking about 187 in California, where people just refused to comply. Um, it was, what, 187 and 206, I think, that were passed right after each other that were supposed to deny services to immigrants and their children. And there were many teachers, social service providers, you know, healthcare workers who just refused to comply with it. So, um, you know, what are other lessons we can learn from history that we can apply to this moment? Um, I'll just say something briefly. I mean, one thing, and this goes back to the the Chinese exclusion era, era is that when one of the probably most difficult things to uh, discern is like who's an immigrant and who's not, who's deportable and who's not. Um, uh, you could just assume everyone's an immigrant or everyone who looks like a certain way is an immigrant, but when it comes down to it, it's, it, it's actually hard to tell. And, and that's a moment of non-compliance. Non that, that's a moment where your silence matters, where if, there, like if, if uh, the city of New Haven has ID cards and it's mostly for undocumented immigrants, and if you're a citizen, you should get one too. You know, how are they going to know? And once they don't know, it sort of it mucks up the system. I mean, it's not the best solution. 
but uh, there's all these other moments of not participating. You know, cities saying, uh, we're not, ice off our campus, ice out of our city. We won't comply unless, it's, unless there's some really high bar that makes sense. Uh, whether someone's a danger, you know? But we want to see what that danger is. Like, how about with a judge's warrant or something, or, or, or judge's order? And so there's, the, compliance is a major factor for, for regular people besides, um, and, you know, and, uh, we have a lawyer at our table, you know, uh, legal resistance is a big part, is a big part of the history, you know, and, and lawyers putting together small cases, big cases, individual people. I mean, that, that is part of the legacy of this defense and, and building movements around that, getting people involved. But I'll, I'll defer to the panel, too. I would just add, legal strategies often play a really big role in making changes. Um, Mizui was talking about how somebody could be walking down the street and they had a conviction from 15 years ago and then they could just be picked up. That's actually not true in Massachusetts because of litigation that has been happening, that happened in the past recent years, where a court found that no, under the language of the statute, they're not allowed to do that. If they, if they committed a crime that would make them subject to mandatory detention, they have to detain them in the moment when they still have them. They can't go back and get them years later. That's, that's not the case for many places in the country, but that was a litigation strategy. A lot of the, pretty much all of the successes we've had in, in Artesia and down in Dili were because of court cases and litigation strategies, paired with media strategies, paired with grassroots resistance, with people donating their time and talking to relatives and Facebook campaigns and all of that stuff. But you, you really do need all of these things to work together. Um, I, we were talking before about how um, in certain uh, processes where people are going through uh, de deportation, um, <clears throat> you can uh, call out uh, members in the community to uh, go and appeal or like show what is maybe the importance that the individual can be as a part of a community. Um, and I was wondering like now that it's so easy that like DACA may not happen anymore, how much uh, can these actions from like people in the community or from organization can actually affect in an audience, um, like in an audit, when uh, someone's going through a process of deportation? <laughs> sorry, could you repeat the question? <laughs> yeah, sorry, so I basically mean like, um, that I, like people that can have um, like maybe importance in the community and write a letter, right? So like someone is going, gonna be, gonna go through the process of deportation, but they have, uh, they're able to have one more, um, like court audience, right? And they can take maybe like letters or they can take um, any kind of support from someone important oh, in the community from, to show. From community membership. Yeah, from community membership. So, so um, to, to like community members sending letters to help stop deportation. Yeah, or so how uh, relevant can that be now that we are facing like, you know, like times where we know that like dog can just go like this, like how relevant can it be from community members to show this? Like support. Well, in the case of um, in the case of legal in, in in the courts, like if it's a bond hearing, there's a, an actual forum for that because one of the criteria that the judge needs to look at is whether they're a flight risk or not. So in that context, you can send support letters. And sometimes, if someone's applying for a benefit, one of the criteria is showing that they have support from the community, their community members. But that's not always helpful. What we find in immigration a lot and. Clients always come and say, well, I have all of these people who love me in the community. That must be enough. Often it isn't enough unless some aspect under the law of what they're applying for has that as a requirement. So, for example, if someone is eligible for a benefit under the law, if they 
are a person of good moral character, well, sure, then we can send 20 letters. But if that's not even an option, then we can't do that. So for example, I think you talked a little bit about DACA. Mm -hmm. If he shuts down DACA, it's not necessarily going to help that there's community members. So everyone who has DACA, well, not everyone, but a lot of people who have DACA will not be, they cannot deport them without a hearing, unless they already have an old removal, some of them already have old removal orders, but most of them will have a hearing. But if they're not eligible for anything, community support is not going to help them. The bigger litigation strategy will probably be about if that right to have DACA can be taken away at this point, there'll probably be some people fighting that, and how quickly it can be taken away, and, and now you've created a settled expectation that you're working, you have this benefit, can they take it away? So far the case law doesn't look great on that, but what's going to happen is people are going to develop litigation strategies, and you know, what you can try and do is support the kinds of organizations that, that, that do that, and that can fund lawyers and their time to, to work on that. Uh, and let me just say, we're gonna take one more question, but let me just say that, um, that between Meg and myself and probably Professor Nye here at UMass, we're gonna, we're gonna try to put something together in, in the next coming weeks about, specifically about DACA and about potential changes. And so we talked about that. It's for everyone in the room to come and get, have a question and answer and get to some of these specifics. But we have one last question, and then there's uh, some snacks outside, so we wanna save room for that. Um, I did have a question, though. Um, that, that previous question kind of brings me to, um, to share something and I think is pretty important actually in terms of like community response to um, targeting undocumented people in our community. Um, I'm, I go to school in Vermont and there's a kind of like growing movement right now around um, dairy workers and, and securing like basic rights for dairy workers in the dairy industry in Vermont. Um, and two of the most visible uh, organizers with Migrant Justice, which is an organization based out of Burlington, um, were targeted by ICE, one in late April um, of this year and another, um, what was that, like late September. Um, and in both of those instances, there was like tons of community support, lots of like just sharing on Facebook and like getting a lot of people out and there were big protests in Burlington and then like big letter writing campaigns and people calling Senator Bernie Sanders' office and Senator Leahy. Um, and both cases, they ended up uh, getting released from ICE in terms of like, uh, like litigation processes. Like I wouldn't know all too much about like the ins and outs of the legal stuff, but that sh proved to be super effective in terms of like mobilizing people on our campus as well. I was like, yes, it worked in April. Like show up to this march right now because it worked. Like it's proven to work. Can um, I just so say something that that's a great? I love that organization. It's a great organization. Um, but one thing that's this this system is so screwed up. It's really hard to talk about in a very short amount of time. But one thing that you're speaking about is there's a lot of power of ICE officers who are basically ICE police to decide whether or not to release somebody. That's what happened in that context, right? So that's called prosecutorial discretion. That has nothing to do with a judge, right? So most people in immigration court will have no opportunity for a judge to do anything in their case. You'll spend months and months waiting for an opportunity to go in front of a judge, to have the judge say, all right, I'm gonna have a hearing for you in three months, and then say, I'm sorry, I denied your eligibility for anything, because I can't do anything. Even if you're the greatest person on the planet, the law is so narrowly written, I can't do anything. And so I think, you know, one of the things when we look at deportation numbers and the 1996 laws is it gave tremendous amount of power to the ICE police and the Border Patrol police to deport people, right? So before those laws, you would be looking for asylum. You would actually have to go in front of a judge. Nowadays, you have a Border Patrol officer being like, ah, I don't think there's any credible claim here. 
you're done. And so I think that's part of the challenge that we face. And this is where I think we're going to have a lot of challenges in this new administration. This will be very different, right? Uh, President Obama has set very clear priorities for prosecutorial discretion. So as a lawyer, you can argue, my client doesn't fit under your priorities. They should be released. Or even if they're priority number two, look at all these other things. Officer, would you please release them? Um, my guessing since, you know, the ICE union backed, and the CBP union backed, uh, the guy who's now going to be president, um, it will be very challenging for those kinds of cases that you're talking about, unless, you know, until we have a kind of a sense of who's priority number one, right? Um, so I think you're right. Like, there's always opportunity to fight back. We should always fight back. I just think we have to be really careful, like any lawyer would tell you. Every case is different. Depends on when you came. Did you come with papers? Do you have a US citizen kid who's a certain age? And so this is, I think, a challenge that we face in the, in the field also is everyone always feels like, well, that my cousin got this. Why can't I got, get this? And so yes to what you're saying, but also we have to really develop strategies and tactics that are very specific to every context. I just, I'll just piggyback on, on that. Yeah, the, the issue is you, you have ICE who's enforcing the immigration laws. They're not deciding the law, but they're deciding to use discretion. This word discretion has been a big buzzword for Obama's administration. He's like, I want people to use discretion. And that's, that discretion comes from the boss. ICE, their boss, is Obama. He sends the message. He sends the memos down. This is how I want you to treat people. Um, use your judgment. That could change. You know, because the, the new boss of these people is going to be Trump. So, you know, the message could come down like, we don't want you to apply discretion. We don't want you to, to think about it. We want you to detain whoever you can. We want whoever you catch. So lowest hanging fruit, not necessarily organized by priorities. Obama's attempt to organize everyone by, well, we'll deport these people and these people last, that's pretty new, and that could just get wiped out. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't fight because that's how you make change and get enough people interested and enough people supporting efforts that will, that will make it better is by bringing that kind of attention to it. Okay, um, I'm, I'm sorry, we, I would love to talk about this all night. We do have some time to talk with our presenters at the reception and after, but we need to say thank you to them. They did an amazing job, so thank you very much.